This is Hallway Talks with Luisa and Ria. Your one-stop shop for policy analysis, political hot takes and everything in between. Our first guest of the series is a professor who really needs no introduction, but we'll give him one anyways. Along with being clinical professor of public service, he is also the director of the international program at NYU Wagner. He has had decades of experience in research and advocacy work, both in foreign and domestic policy issues in the United States. If you have the pleasure of being one of his students, as we did, you know that his current obsession is the upcoming 2020 US elections. So we decided to have an uninhibited conversation to dig deeper into his hopes, fears, and hot takes for November. Presenting Professor John Gershman, recorded August 28, 2020. So thank you so much, Professor Gershman, for coming here to talk with us. It's honestly such an honor to have you here. I think we can safely say that you were kind of like the patron saint for international students around the NYU Wagners. Well, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So today we want to walk through what's, what we can expect from this election. And we also just want to know your general thoughts that maybe we wouldn't know if we just had a class with you where we were discussing this, but we want to just get into the informal nitty gritties of the election. Okay. Although I'll start up front with saying, I don't believe anyone who says that they know what to expect from this election. <laughs> That's a great starting point. Why do you say that? Um, just because we are, uh, the Trump presidency has been unlike any other presidency we've had. This election cycle has been unlike any previous election cycle that we've had. And so there have been umpteen times where we have said, oh, of course, he's not going to do this or he's not going to do that. And he goes ahead and does it, starting from even being elected in the first place. So I have lost all kind of foundational basis of reference of saying this is what's realistic or reasonable to expect because those are always exceeded. So I really, I think that's one of the hardest things about this election. The only thing that's been consistent, if you look, is that kind of the opinion polls have been roughly consistent since June in terms of the Biden-Trump difference, you know, kind of low 50s for Biden, low 40s for Trump. And that's been relatively solid, you know, the national polling relatively consistent through June, despite all of the other insanity that's gone on. But who knows now as we move into basically the last two months and that Biden is going to more actively start campaigning. And I presume Trump is going to start campaigning. You know, who really knows? Yeah. And even you are talking about election polls, but... We can never forget that Hillary had a solid lead on Donald Trump in 2016 until the last day. You know, I, we talked about this on our conversation, Professor Tom Blaylock, but I remember watching the 538 predictions chart and they started the day giving like 70% win chance for Hillary and then they just start going down and down and down and... And 538 even, I have to give them credit, they were probably the closest... Because 
they were not calling it a hundred percent for Hillary, right? There was still this chance, and you know, thanks to seventy thousand voters in three states, that's we end up with a Trump administration. So, I mean, I do think I will say that also even Hillary, if we go back a little further. Um, Michael Dukakis in 1988 was also leading George W. Bush. Uh, I, yeah, George H.W. Bush um, in the 88 election. And then kind of things turned around. In particular, it's often attributed to the use by uh, the Bush campaign of the um, Willie Horton ad, which was, uh, who was an African-American uh, person who had been basically on a release from prison and raped and killed someone. Um, and so that was, even though it was didn't really have anything to do with Dukakis, he was bludgeoned with this as, and it was kind of the classic example of kind of overtly using race, law and order for the first time since basically Nixon in 1968. That was, this was, this was Lee Atwater and it was a, a very famous strategy. And I think we're more than likely to see that strategy repeated in this election. We've had hints to it. And clearly, Trump's speech last evening at the Republican National Convention, it's like, this is this is where he's going to, he's going to go. It's kind of the domestic version of his incitement against illegal, quote unquote, illegal immigrants from Mexico that he used in the 2016 race. So I think now we're going to see it, uh, in this election. I do kind of want to deep dive into uh, Trump's speech last night. I will start with one thing that I noticed he said. He, in the beginning of his speech, invokes Abraham Lincoln yes. and says, I come from the party of Abraham Lincoln. And then there's a lot of applause. What do we think about him invoking Abraham Lincoln at this point and the switch that the Republican Party now represents? Right. And then he later in the speech invokes Abraham Lincoln because he says he's been he's done the most for blacks since Abraham Lincoln. Yeah. So he's like firmly. Well, so this is a time honored kind of Republican tradition. Abe Lincoln is the anti-racist Republican president. So so this is just the time honored thing of the party of Lincoln and so on and so forth. And it's largely an indicator that they you know, don't really have anyone of national stature to point to in the Republican Party who was, uh, you know, a robust supporter of civil rights and so forth. There were, I mean, the coalition that led to the passage of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act did include moderate Republicans at that time. It was basically Northeastern, Northern liberal Democrats and moderate Republicans were the coalition because Southern Democrats were pro-segregation. But those those moderate Republicans who were generally pro-choice, pro-civil rights, they have effectively been evicted from the party. So there's nobody really left in the Republican Party that is that kind of a voice. You know, I think Susan Collins likes to think that she is and, and so forth. But really, there's nobody else who occupies that position. And so I think that, you know, Trump recognizes that he has to play some kind of a card on race. And this is Abraham Lincoln is his favorite kind of person to trot out. But that's also very much in line with other Republicans who, you know, trot out Lincoln as their 
look at the Republicans from their founding have been against slavery and racism. That was true for Lincoln, not necessarily true for the rest of the Republican Party, particularly since the end of the civil rights legislation, when the Republican Party took a hard, basically tried to mobilize all of the Southern whites that got that were upset about civil rights legislation and the Voting Rights Act, and they moved out of the Southern Democratic Party and moved into the Republican Party. And Richard Nixon was a, originally that was Barry Goldwater, but then Richard Nixon was the key architect of that. And then that trend went through the Reagan administration and the Bush administration, and Trump has kind of carried it now to its white nationalist conclusion with using far fewer coded words as perhaps had been done in the past and making more overt appeals to kind of white nationalism. I was surprised with how unafraid the Republicans were in bringing the conversation to identity politics during the convention, their version of identity politics. They had a lot of African-American personalities there. A phrase that they used a lot was, I know true racism and Donald Trump isn't it. Like the conversation was ever about what an individual mm -hmm. person feels or doesn't feel mm -hmm. so much deeper than that. No, I mean, first of all, I think the right is the original progenitor of identity politics, right? And kind of the left's response to white supremacy, which was identity politics, was a whole host of things from civil rights to black liberation and the broader civil rights agenda. So, you know, they are experts at identity politics. And in particular, they have been very successful at engaging in identity politics without using the identity politics language because they represent kind of dominant groups in society. So when you do that, those are the normal people They don't have identity. It's these other people who are using identity because we are just normal, right? We are the American way of life. We are normal Americans. Normal Americans don't like this. You know, we are good, God-loving Americans. And that ends up being coded language for basically whites, but you don't have to use that because you've already captured that definition You know, so, but I think this is this, back to your very first question of what to expect about the election. It's like, here we had a president who unabashedly, a president who running for re-election unabashedly stood up and told at least 25 significant blatant lies in his speech. And it's like, we're just used to it by now. <laughs> it's like... It's like it doesn't generate it doesn't generate anger or it's just like people roll their eyes and say he's kind of like that and he has been able to normalize that kind of activity so we know the talking points that will be reproduced on Fox and on right-wing social media and so forth and basically create those echo chambers but it's like the cheapening of the discourse that like this is where we are basically four years after his election truth has been basically made purely relative or irrelevant. I think COVID has been a, a good indicator of the blurring of facts, the blurring of data and the disregard for experts mm -hmm. and science that this Trump administration has taken on. I actually want to 
talk a little bit about what that means for voters in this election. I think both the conventions, both the Democratic and Republican conventions had extremely emotional appeals in most of the speeches. Policy was not a highlight of the political narrative, both in the conventions and just the political rhetoric that has been um, there around the election so far. So what are we expecting voters to vote on the basis of? The most recent research that we have on voting is that by and large, the vast majority of people do not sit down and do a, what are the policy positions or what are the platforms of these two parties? Which one do I agree with more? And then I'll, I'll choose that one. I, I think the, the evidence would indicate that the leaders of the, of the campaigns have decided we're gonna really focus on emotional appeals to people and it's going to focus on the leadership qualities of the pres- the respective presidential candidates. Kind of which leader do you trust to bring us out of this crisis and kind of rebuild America? On the Republican side, Trump is a leader. He's a strong leader, masculine, whatever. On the other side, the, the Democrats have decided at least for trying to win over swing voters, right? So they're trying to reclaim people who voted for Obama and then voted for Trump. And I think they're going to try to reclaim them by saying, we have a more compassionate leader who understands your pain and that is going to help clean up the mess that the Trump administration has brought. Trump Trump is an incompetent leader, benefiting his friends. He's corrupt and so on and so forth. We'll have to see if either side tries to do a more policy move in after Labor Day when kind of campaigning is going to begin again. So I think one of the debates that I've seen within kind of the broad umbrella of the Democratic Party is between people who who see this kind of we want it, it's about Biden as a leader who which they see as basically trying to appeal to the never Trumper Republicans and these kind of swing voters as opposed to people who would like to see the Democrats go full out to mobilize and turn out people who feel alienated from the political process as a whole, maybe Bernie voters, and basically take the Bernie message, right, around economic justice, redistribution, and so forth, and have that be the centerpiece. And it seems to me at the moment, anyway, the the battle has been won by the, this is going to be about Biden and leadership, and so forth. And I think it needs to be about Biden and leadership, but I worry because it's going to be so difficult for people to vote in the first place that there was a constituency mobilized again by Sanders and have been mobilized by various insurgent candidates, kind of a left-wing economic populism that I think is there to be mobilized, but you have to be willing to speak to it. And it's a mistake, I think, particularly in a number of down-ticket races, if the Democrats don't have a robust economic populist message that is about addressing the crisis and doing it better than the last time a democratic president um, had to respond to a crisis. If we are going to talk about policies and pay attention to policies, (laughs) we can't help ourselves. (laughs) If no one else than us, at least. (laughs) <laughs> but I think the healthcare is going to be one mm-hmm. of the most important issues that are going to come up. And 
What's your opinion on Biden's public option proposal compared to a more substantial universal health care in the terms that maybe yeah. someone like Sanders was? I basically see their position. So the one thing that I think is uniquely different now is that there's no one really on the Democratic Party any longer that's against universal health care. That was not necessarily the case in 2010 when Obama care Obama was trying to get Obamacare together. For better or worse, 10 years later, universal health care, there's nobody in the Democratic Party who's going to be overtly against universal health care. There are going to be differences on what's the best way to do it. And as much as I would be in support of a more a movement towards some kind of a either a single payer system or a very strongly regulated private insurance system like they have in the Netherlands or 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 Switzerland. I think that's going to be a very difficult sell as the country tries to pull itself out of a severe economic crisis. I kind of see his kind of public option as what's likely it's kind of it's building on Obamacare. I mean, this is kind of the classic institutionalist thing absent a large scale social movement that would demand Medicare for all, and in particular would have to include labor unions and so forth, which were central to universal health care demands in Europe. But, you know, there are a number of labor unions who are not supportive of Medicare for all because they have reasonably good health care programs currently through their employment. And it is a benefit for union workers Right. It's good for unions if they can tell people, if you're a member of the union, you're going to get access to good health care. And so, as we know from prospect theory, right, people are averse to losses. And so why should they give up really good health care in exchange for something that maybe isn't so good? Right. As their current health care. And particularly without more robust cost containment measures, that's going to be it's going to be hugely expensive to have a single payer system in the short term. I do think one of the good sides of the pandemic, it has highlighted how how ridiculous it is to have health insurance linked to employment. Yeah. Right. There's nothing like this crisis <laughs> to show that that is a really bad idea. And so I don't think it's necessarily going to lead to a Medicare for all thing. But to the extent that it leads to some kind of a more robust public option, particularly for small businesses who could get out of the health insurance business, and if people had access to the public option, like, and then what you basically do is move towards something like a Medicare for all mm -hmm. over time. Now, you know, there's going to be a political opening. Insurance companies have been making money hand over fist during the pandemic. It's like they're doing very well. So I do think there's mm -hmm. going to be an opening for reform. I don't think we're going to get much more than the public option, but I do think we might get some other things. You might get some movement on more robust movement on drug prices. But I think at one level, defending Obamacare has been a signal mm -hmm. victory. And remember, it was up to the Republicans, John McCain, that we were able to basically, right. it was defended. You know, right. so this is why I find it hard to imagine that you're going to that we basically got the ACDA through the skin of its teeth. It was almost mm -hmm. overturned, you know, up to one vote. We still have a Supreme Court case that may throw another wrench in it that prob the decision probably won't come out till after the election. To think that you can 
that you can move from that overnight to a Medicare for all thing, I think just ignores the fact that we don't have evidence that there is a mass movement um, that's capable of overcoming all of those institutional and legal obstacles to making that happen. You know, in addition to the Biden himself is not kind of a champion for that. So the first, the last thing I really wanted us to talk about is voting by mail. How do you see this playing out? Do you think that we are going to have universal voting by mail in most states? Do you think it's going to work well? Do you think it's going to be a chaos? Yeah. So I think, I think the one thing, the only thing that is clear, I think, is whatever happens with mail-in voting or something, Trump is going to attempt to indict the validity of states that have large vote-by-mail things. He's going to claim it's fraud. Um, and I think he is, he's already, you know, prefigured his argument. He is going to call into doubt the results of tabulations that have to extend beyond Election Day and or involve significant, amount, significant numbers of mail-in ballots. He's going to do it. And I think that's where what we don't exactly know is what comes after that. Right. I think that's the that's the thing. But if he decides that he is going to basically stay in power by attacking the validity of the elections and if there is then popular mobilization in response to that and then he declares some kind of a martial law, that's an entirely plausible, it seems to me, trajectory to imagine. Right. I don't think the scenario is. Out, out of bounds, given that we already saw what we could think of as a dry run at this by the use of federal agents to take people off the streets, right, with no accountability, without identification, you know, that we saw in Portland. You could argue that's a dry run. If you're going to try to create some level of instability by challenging the validity of the elections, there's nothing secret about this. He's been very overt about his attacks on on the on mail-in ballots and so on and so forth, because I think he recognizes that in this round, like 2018, a turnout, turnout election mm -hmm. is going to be bad right. for him. We have several states that already do mail-in ballots, and it's mm -hmm. like not a big deal, and it's not a problem. And interestingly enough, none of the evidence shows that it favors yep. either party, right? It doesn't seem to significantly impact either party. So it is one of those kind of unicorn reforms which reduces obstacles to turnout and doesn't harm anybody, right? So nobody in principle should be opposed to it unless you're fundamentally opposed to turnout. Yeah, which, and, yeah. yeah. Right, which I think, right? So there's, so there's all sorts of good reasons why we should have moved, other states should have moved to mail-in ballots earlier. The pandemic's going to accelerate this. That can be a good thing. I think what you're going to end up seeing is Again, in the United States highlights how ridiculous it is in that this is the only country where voting is not a federal mm -hmm. concern, right? That this is the fact that this is a state concern and is often a very politicized state concern as opposed to in Brazil, right? You have an impartial agency that regulates elections. It's like it should be a core operation of the state. It should not be a partisan political position, right? The states that have already said that they're going to mail a mail-in ballot to all registered voters, they're already being brought to court by the Trump administration, right? So it's 
like his assault on the election is not waiting for November 3rd. It's already begun. Clearly, the guy he put in at the USPS, this was part of their strategy to do that. And so I feel at the end of the day that this is why people, if they if they are in states where they can, if it's safe for them to vote in person, then they should vote in person. Um, if it's not necessarily safe for them to vote in person, they should request their ballot as early as possible and use a drop-off point or mail it in as early as possible. And this is going to pose a major challenge, like get out the vote activities have to begin basically in September, as opposed to like really ramp up the end of October. It's because we need people to make sure they're registered if they're not, and then get their ballots and then get them in very early. We are in an emergency, right? It is, this is, this is not something that people can like, deal with just by signing online petitions and so on and so forth. But people have to be actively mobilized to have the widest possible registration turnout so that it becomes literally impossible for him to challenge the outcome of the election. The only way that we can be reasonably confident is if as many votes are in that are against Trump that can be counted by the time of the election and then be ready to defend democracy if he is, you know, continues to assault it afterwards. You know, it's crazy that we thought 2020 would be a historic year for so many reasons. And one of them is that we're seeing a fascist assault on the postal service. It's just crazy to witness. Totally. Um, uh, It's going to be an interesting one. So now we want to get to know a little bit more about your personal involvement with the U.S. election system. So what, okay. can you tell us what the first election you ever voted for was? My first election was, um, so in 1984, I was 20. And I was involved at that time, I was in college. And I was involved with the College Democrats, and Walter Mondale was the candidate in 1984 running against Reagan. So we were doing the best that we could to support Walter Mondale in the middle of the Reagan, uh, in the middle of the Reagan era. So, yeah. So that was a tough election. The first time I voted for a candidate who actually won was in 2008. <laughs> Are you serious? That's a long time. Yeah. That's a long time. Well, so in 88, I voted for Dukakis and he lost. 92, I never voted for Bill Clinton because he was far too conservative. Mm-hmm. So I voted third party candidates in 92 and 96. Um, Ever optimist. And then, well, it was just like a, I just could not bring myself to, to vote for Clinton. He was just horrible. Mm-hmm. Um, and... And then in 2000, I voted for Gore yeah. um, and I voted for Kerry. So it wasn't until Obama was the first time I actually voted for a winning presidential candidate. You know, you mentioned the Democratic. Uh, and I think for people our age, especially the ones that lean more liberal, lean more left, uh, AOC has emerged as someone who speaks the language. Right. So I just want to hear your take on AOC. She is totally awesome. Like I, she is a, as far as I can tell, a once in a generation, she has the rhetoric and the language that is just perfect for this. But at the same time, she is not 
she is totally substance. Like when you see her in committee hearings asking questions, like she comes prepared, she comes to do business and she comes conscious of the fact that these are being recorded. And so she comes for impact. If I was to pick an icon of what I would like all of our political candidates to look like, she would be it. I'm very hopeful that we have this younger generation of insurgent Democrats. There is no one on the right in Republican politics who generates as much interest or excitement or enthusiasm or shows the ability to speak to the diverse America of your generation. Absolutely. Right. Even though you guys aren't Americans, um, yeah. but your generation of Americans is the most diverse generation that we have. And she speaks, she can speak to that. Uh, so now to close, it's been a, it's been quite a year. It's been a hard year. It's been an unexpected year. And I think all of us right now as students need a little bit of advice. It would be great to get some. Um, so <laughs> what advice do you have? to give students living through this year? So my general advice is always plan for the worst and hope for the best, right? So everyone should be, and like even international students can do get out the vote stuff. And so everyone who feels like they have a stake in this election should do whatever legally permissible for them to do. And as, as difficult as it can be, that this is fundamentally investment in the existence of a public service, right? It's like, <laughs> this This is an investment in your future job prospects. Yeah. Um, so I gave the speech last fall and I totally failed at like trying to encourage people to, you know, that they should finish the fall semester and then take off the next year and just, because this election was going to matter for their future careers, in addition to like the well-being of lots of people in America. I feel like that prediction was totally justified. Yes, and more. And so, so that was, and so in the last, we basically have 67 days or whatever until election. I think people need to figure out whatever they can do amidst work and school and whatever to be doing some things around that and to be talking with other people and other organizations to basically plan for a particular, a potentially very bad aftermath. I would encourage people to think to do that. And there are a number of organizations, Protect the Vote and others that are trying to line up. And then the, the other organizations, Indivisible, Swing Left, all the, there's a whole host of them. The other thing is NYU is going to have a campaign specifically focused on the NYU community of registering to vote, NYU votes. And Wagner is going to have a particular platform associated with basically using peer groups and behavioral science to encourage people to vote. It's an organization that was created by Wagner students as part of their capstone. Uh, it's called Motivote. And then the other thing is for people who are, you know, in good physical health to sign up to be poll watchers during the election, um, particularly if people are living outside of New York. I will say, I think there are groups of students who who come to Wagner and they say, I do public service, I don't do politics. And I, I would like to think that at some point people recognize that divide never really existed in normal times, certainly doesn't exist now. Nope. And that this is not a time for people to say that I prefer to keep my hands out of politics because it's dirty. It's like politics is what we need right now. Thank you so much, Professor Gershman. I thought this was hope- helpful, useful, whatever. It was 
It's always such a pleasure to talk to you, and thank you so much for letting just pick oh. your brain for this long. My, totally my pleasure. It was really fun.